Now, if you got your Bibles at home, uh, as I go through this, open up to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. It's about the sixth book of the New Testament. I think it's sixth book of the New Testament. I love biographies. I love biographies. I recently read a biography of a man named William Wilberforce. I had known a bit about his life and some of the stuff he did in his life, but I, I read his, you know, his larger biography by a man named, the, written by Eric Metaxas. Wilberforce is a man that every Christian ought to study his life. Uh, he was within British Parliament. Just first of all, he just had a brain that was out of this world. Some guys, you read their life and you see how intelligent they are and you just kind of stand and wonder, how could someone be that intelligent? But not, just, not only was he intelligent, he was a deep Christian man who believed that his faith ought to impact the world around him. It ought to change something about the world around him. And he found himself as a young man inside British Parliament during the days of the slave trade in England. Now, the slave trade in England was much like the slave trade in America, only they ended it, they ended it way before America did. And it was largely due to the work of William Wilberforce. Now, here's what's interesting. William Wilberforce, because of his Christian faith, he was looking around and he knew the slave trade had to end. He knew it was an abomination to the Lord because scriptures say man stealing is an abomination to the Lord. The whole thing was an abomination to the Lord, but somehow it had become legalized in his country. So William Wilberforce, as a young man, began to work through the government to see laws changed. And at first, everyone thought he was crazy. They laughed at him. They thought he was that religious kooky guy who was always bringing the law to the floor of parliament to get the laws changed. He also wanted to see the overall morality of England changed because he felt like it had fallen into a depraved state. And he fought tirelessly. Every time his bill would come to the British floor, they'd laugh at him, they'd mock him, they'd shoot it off to the side. Throughout his life, he fought. And in the final days of his life, days before he died, British Parliament rose to a standing ovation in, the, in honor of William Wilberforce because they had finally abolished the slave trade in England. He died just a few days later. It's one of the great stories of human history. Today, most Christians have forgotten the rich history of their Christian faith and of the men and women who have gone before them who have seen laws change as a result of their Christian faith being enacted on their government. Men and women who have labored within their government to bring about a more Christian, more just society. We have forgotten our heritage. Honestly, we have. We've forgotten so many of the names that used to be commonplace dinner names around the dinner table at Christian homes and stories of what they've done. And because of that, we've forgotten what our responsibilities are. This short memory of ours is a disservice. And frankly, many of us don't only have a, don't only have a, a short memory, but we have lost track of what the scripture's ideals are and, and ideas are for how we engage with government as a whole. What are we to do with government? Do we just say, vote for Jesus, and then don't think twice about government? Just say, hey, look, it's not the Christian realm. We don't think about that kind of stuff. Is that what Christians do? Do we just say, government is an evil thing in and of itself, so let's just stay out of it? Is that the idea? Does God have any purpose for government? Or is it some cosmic accident? This is just the way that the world kind of happened. It was outside of God's plan. And how, as Christians, are we to think politically? Now, these are all big questions. Last week, Kenson opened up 
and he specifically spoke on how we are to relate to each other in a very politically divisive climate. And he spoke about love, and he spoke about listening and humility. All of those are vital. And I encourage you, if you have not heard Kenson's sermon from last week, listen to that sermon. This sermon, detached from that sermon, is going to be challenging right? He said a lot of stuff I wish I could infuse into my time today that I can't, so please listen to that. But as I do this today, I want to open up Romans 13, and I want to look at what is God's purpose for government. I want us to be aware of it and think biblically on it. Now, as I do this, I want you to guard yourself. There is a way to hear this sermon and filter it through a very American lens. What I mean by that is that we tend to think of our uh, ideals and our structure as the only way, the simple, the single best way to do things. And I want to say the form of American government is a very good thing. We as Christians should celebrate uh, the freedoms and the liberties that come through the American government, but we should be very careful that we don't overlay this American lens over the Bible. And that's not the case. Uh, God has ideals for government. He has ideas for government, but they can happen in many different ways. And so we've got to be careful against Americanizing the Bible. Now, with that precaution, we are going to look at three principles out of Romans 13 for understanding God's design for government. Principle number one, government is under God's authority and ultimately held accountable to God. Government is under God's authority and ultimately held accountable to God. Now, this first principle seems pretty simple, but let's dig in. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Read this way. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, First point, God's government, or all government is under God's authority. Under this point, we learn a number of historic beliefs of the Christian faith. When you look back over the the globe and you consider all the variety of the government and every different type of government that's ever existed and does exist, both the ones we know about and even the ones that you and I have never even heard of, they've just been part of the, the historic outworkings of the way history has unfolded. Every governmental structure, every leader has been put in place by God. He is over it all. There is no governmental leader who has ever been in place that was not instituted by God, who God placed there. No election can thwart God's plan. No coup can thwart God's plan. No war can thwart God's plan. God places all governmental leaders in authority for their time, for his purposes. He institutes them. He places them in their roles. Now, we're told not to resist the authorities. Why is that? We're told not to resist the authorities. The illustration that is oftentimes used, especially by a man named Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper was a great... uh, man who worked inside European government, and he wrote often on what government is. And the illustration he uses is of a, of a, a young plant. If you imagine, and you've seen this happen a lot of times, when a plant is growing, oftentimes it's too weak to stand on its own, especially in cities where the root structures aren't quite as good as if you're out in the forest. When a tree is growing and it's too weak to stand on its own, what someone will do is they'll come and they'll place a a stick in the ground, and a solid stick in the ground. Then they'll tie that shoot of the tree to the stick. 
That way the tree is strengthened by this stick that's there in the ground. And as it grows up, it grows stronger and it grows the way it's supposed to grow because it's tied to that stick in the ground. Now, that's a bit of an illustration for us of what government is. If we were left on our own because of the influx of sin in the human story, that's we've already covered all of that in the book of Romans, because we're sinful and fallen, if there was no government, humanity would fall into anarchy. Now, we actually know that from the book of Judges. We have an entire Old Testament book in the Bible that tells about when there's no government and what happens. Even among the people of God, it immediately fell into anarchy and death and pain and all the worst parts of the Bible happened during that season. Without government, because, <coughs> because of sin, we would fall into anarchy. But God has instituted government as a firm foundation to prop up the human story, to provide bounds and guidance so that humans can grow vertically strong and healthy and prosperous. Now, a question that oftentimes arises at this point is what we should think as Christians about bad government. I mean, this is the question that most comes up. If God has instituted every government, then what about guys like Hitler? What about guys like Stalin? Are we to believe that God placed them in power as well? Well, the answer is, of course, yes. Right? We're going to the Bible here. We're looking at Romans 13. God institutes all authorities. God instituted their leadership and God oversaw the demise of their leadership. Now, what do I mean by this? Every nation that does not submit to God is ultimately going to be held accountable to God and incur God's judgment if they do not lead in a way that is just and that is a part of common grace, the knowledge of God in every human. In other words, when nations work to go against the desires of God, when they go against the desires of God by forming laws that clearly break God's commands and rob individuals of dignity, rob individuals of the value that is owed them as a result of all people being made in the image of God, God will ultimately bring judgment on that nation. That is historical what we have seen take place and it's biblical what we know happens through scripture. How do we know this? For two reasons. First, from this text, we see that government has been placed by God to do his will. They are there to do his will. And just like any agent, you and I are individual agents who are placed here to do God's will, when we disobey God, we incur judgment from God. We, often we incur uh, a dis, like disobedience. He corrects us just like a parent would correct a child. Let me give you an example from Scripture. Isaiah chapter 10. This is a really important passage in Scripture. And frankly, it's real fascinating uh, because it jumps into uh, exactly what I'm describing here. Isaiah chapter 10. So if you keep your finger where we are in Romans 13 and you jump back to Isaiah chapter 10. In this chapter, the prophet Isaiah is looking over the people of God of the Old Testament and he's, he, he's, he's prophesying against them and he's angry with them. And what he's saying is, God is going to bring judgment on you, Israel. You want to know why? Because you have deprived the needy of justice. Because you've robbed the poor and the widows and have made the fatherless their prey. That's Isaiah's words. He's looking out over the people of God and he's saying, your entire society has developed in such a way that you are doing the opposite of what God designed you to do, to bring justice, to bring love. God will bring judgment on this. Now, what was the form of that judgment? Interestingly, it was Assyria. 
God raised up Assyria, who was a pagan nation led by a pagan king, to come and wage war on the nation of Israel. Listen to this. Listen to how Assyria is described in the next few verses. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, reads this way. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Assyria, a pagan nation with a pagan king, is the rod of God's anger. He's bringing about justice towards Israel by using a pagan king who doesn't realize he's being used by God to wage war on Israel. And by doing so, he's bringing judgment on Israel for their sin of depriving the needy of justice. See how that works in history? That's real history playing out. And the the agents who were part of it did not realize that God was orchestrating the whole thing. See how that works? That's history. Now, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 13, Assyria then gets full of themselves. See, what happens next is Assyria then overtakes Israel and Assyria begins to boast in what they've done. Now, how do you think that's going to go for them? Isaiah chapter 10, verse 13 reads this way. This is what Assyria says. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of people and I plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. See him boasting, thinking he was the one that did it, rather than submitting to the God who was over him, who had done all of this. So you know what God then does? God then brings judgment on Assyria. See, when a nation does not submit to God, ultimately judgment comes on Assyria. And listen to how the judgment comes on Assyria. Verse 15. God says through Isaiah, Shall the axe boast over him who hews it? Assyria being the axe, God the one hewing it, saying, Should the axe boast over him who hews it? And by my, uh, I'm sorry, verse 15. Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? And then it goes on, it says, I will send a wasting sickness among his stout warriors. He'll send a pandemic among his stout warriors. God looks over nations who are in disobedience because he has placed every nation as an authority to execute justice and to be a good government that institutes laws that honor God. And when they don't, he ultimately brings justice in his own time. In his own time, he brings about justice. God is the one who is in control. This is why we call Jesus the King of Kings. You ever thought about that? We say that word all the time. You don't think about what it means. Every king bows in submission, whether they know it or not, to the king. He's the Lord of every Lord. He is over it all. He reigns over all of it. And every nation ultimately submits to his authority. All right. Principle number two. Government is God's servant responsible for carrying the sword. Government is God's servant responsible for carrying the sword. Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. Let's read this. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Here it is. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. All right, we're getting a pretty good picture here of God's design for government. Government is not some cosmic accident. It's not just the way the world worked out. God created it. 
He gave it to mankind as a blessing to do a certain purpose and to function in a certain way. It says that it is, he is the governor, the government is the servant of the Lord. That word there is the same word we use for deacon in the church. Government is the deacon of God. He's the servant of God. He's doing God's work. He is serving God in a particular way. And how is he serving God? By carrying the sword, by enacting justice. Remember the sword is a killing machine. So by carrying the sword and enacting justice on the evildoer. Now I know I'm getting into some kind of dense theology here, but this is important. Every Christian should be aware of what the Bible teaches about what the government is so that when we're making decisions, when we're reading the news, we can think biblically. That's what I want for our people. I want us more than anything to think biblically and to know the verses, to know the chapter and the numbers so you can go to it and think about it in light of what the Bible says. Now, when it says government carries the sword, what does that mean? Well, historically, there's been three swords in the Reformed tradition of interpreting Scripture, which is what I teach here. There's been three swords that have been thought of, and this is just kind of a a way to think through what this particular verse means. The first sword is the sword of justice. This is an internal sword. So government carries the sword of justice. What that means is that when someone breaks the law, if someone murders or someone steals or someone breaks any of God's commands, when they break the law, who is it that brings about justice on the evildoer? It's the government. It's not the individual. It's not churches. It's no other authority. It's the government who has been given authority by God to carry out justice, the sword, on him who breaks God's laws. So if you break God's laws, if you do things that are evil, God has instituted the government to bring about justice and to make you pay the penalty appropriately for what you did that was wrong. That's government's job. Secondly is the sword of order, another internal one. This is the right of a nation, a sovereign nation, to quell rebellion from within. Right? So if there becomes rebellion, if, there, if you try to overthrow the government in some way, the government has the sword of order to, to bring about order within society, to make sure that things don't fall into anarchy. That's literally their job, right? They're the stick and they're making sure that things don't fall into anarchy, which is the natural tendency of humans without government. And so they have the sword of order to make sure that things are growing properly. And the third sword is the sword of war. Now, I know I'm stepping into super controversial stuff here, but let me explain this to you. The sword of war, that's an external sword. The first two swords were internal. The third sword that's historically believed is the external sword. Christians on the whole, obviously, desire peace. We desire peace. Nobody wants to go to war. Nobody wants to do that. But when a nation's boundaries, when a nation is under attack, when a nation is threatened, Under certain guidelines, nations have the sword to go to war in order to quell violence that is intended upon different nations. Now, in history, there is many fields of study over what is a just war and what is an unjust war. And I would encourage every follower of Christ to study that topic. That is a fascinating topic to study. But what's important here is that nations have been given the authority by God to defend themselves against attack. That's part of the reason government has been given to nations. They carry the sword to do his will. This is the historic way of interpreting this passage. That is to say that a military, a strong military that guards the nation, that is working justly, 
is within God's design. Now let me remind you, very importantly, when we talk about the sword, it was Jesus Christ that underwent the ultimate sword of justice. Every single person, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how much Bible you think you know, how many times you've gone to church, how much time you've spent in prayer, Every person has fallen short and has found out and realized, if you've read scripture, you've realized that you are a sinner in the hands of a wrathful God. What that means is that you have broken God's commands and there is real justice to be paid. Just as a criminal in our society would need to uh, have justice executed on them by the government, you as a spiritual being made in the image of God who's broken God's commands should receive justice from God, the right penalty for your sin. But God sent Jesus to undergo the sword on your behalf. This is total grace. You didn't earn it. He was a substitute for you. He went under the cross for you, shed his blood so that you could be forgiven in the ultimate court, under the ultimate sword, the one that is above every other sword, the one who's ultimately in control, so that you could have your sins fully forgiven. Jesus went under the sword on your behalf and he promises you life to the full to change everything about you so that you turn from being someone who disobeys God's commands and is acting in violence even when you don't realize it, who was destined for eternity apart from hell and apart from God in hell and to make you a person who honors God with your life. Jesus is able to do that by forgiving your sins and transforming you. He went under the ultimate sword on your behalf. Now, as we talk about the sword, there's a lot of culturally relevant conversations we can have. I want to talk about one right now. There is a phrase that most people have heard of. Uh, it starts off as defund the police and it moves to abolish the police. Now, I want to talk about those phrases and I want to think about them biblically. This is what I want you to do. I want you to be able to think about things you see happening in culture and then I want you to look to the Bible and get guidance from Scripture and then interpret these things through what the Bible says. Now, I am looking out, trying to understand what these phrases mean. I hear defund the police, I hear abolish the police. On their best day, and I have heard folks advocate for these phrases, and I can get behind a lot of what they're saying. On their best day, what I think they're trying to explain is that the police system, part of government, needs reform. And to that, I would say, yes and amen. Every system needs reform. The church needs reform. We constantly need reforming. There's always going to be stuff we got to get getting better. And we got to keep growing and making things work better. And I'm certain within the police system, within, every, within the education system, we need to reform and keep making things better and, and looking to Scripture for guidance on how they can be better. And if that's what that means, then the Christian can say, while I might not agree with the phrase, because I don't think it represents that idea best, I get it. I'm for that idea. Let's keep making things better. Yes and amen. We want injustices to be corrected. Of course, we're Christians. If the phrase means take the sword of order and the sword of justice out of the hands of the government and into the hands of citizens, can the Christian get behind that? The answer is no, they cannot. Because of Romans 13. It's not the individual who holds the sword of order. It's the government who holds the sword of order. You see the difference there? 
And so if the idea of abolish the police is take the sword out of the hands of the government and give it to the people so they carry it on their own, then we actually can't get behind that idea. That would be against Romans 13. This is where I want you to be able to to look and see. And, And what I see is sometimes it means the first one, reform the police. Other times is what we've seen happen on occasion. We think of places like Portland or Seattle. There's been occasions where it literally means take the sword out of the government's hands we can stand against that as Christians. And we can say, that's not Romans 13, God's idea of government. All right, third principle. Government operates within a specific and limited sphere of influence. Government operates within a specific and limited sphere of influence. Romans 13, verses five to seven. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. They are ministers of God attending to this very thing. What is that very thing? Carrying the sword of justice. Now, executing justice on the evildoer is the realm of government. That's what they are to do. Government has a lane by God, a primary lane that they are responsible for. And there are other lanes that they are not responsible for. You see that? They have things that God has made them to do primarily to carry about order, to develop a just, fair society, and to uh, establish order and to carry out justice. That's government's lane. But there are other lanes that are not their prerogative. It's not what God has designed them to do. Throughout history, most theologians, most people reading the Bible, putting it all together, have developed, usually it's three, sometimes a fourth is added in, it's three realms of governing authority. This is important to know. There's the government of the state. That's what we're talking about today, the state government, right? State being nations, states, any actual like political government. That government has a job. We've been going over what their job is. In another sphere is another government, the government of the church, We use the language of governance within the church to talk about the role of elders and what elders are supposed to do. And that governance has another lane they work in. Their role is different than the government of the state. The government of the church is to oversee order within the church, to execute uh, church discipline, to oversee the elements, communion and baptism, and and to the, uh, the, the full life of the church and the community. The government of the state cannot do those things, nor should they. To do that would be to overstep their bounds. Just as it would be the overstepping the bounds of the church, elders were to step into the lane of executing justice on the evildoers. Two separate lanes. Then there's a third lane. The third realm is the government of the family. And this is what we've seen in scripture as well. We actually talked about this with the children. The government of the family, parents are like government. It's particularly the father, the head of the household, serves as the elder of his house And serving that family, raising the children, making sure that the home is growing up in a way that honors the parents. Now, here's the problem. All of those realms are filled with messy, sinful people like you and like me. Everyone. Every one of them is filled with people who have way too big an ego, including you and including me. And so here's what this means. The natural tendency of sinful people within governing authorities is to overstep their bounds across the whole place, right? Family members trying to tell the church, elders, how they ought to elder (laughs) and who should be excommunicated from the church. That's not going to work. That wasn't your role. That's the elders of the church role. 
church trying to tell the government how they ought to execute justice on evildoers. That's not going to work. That's not their role. That's the government's role. And the government trying to tell families how they ought to parent. That's not going to work. That's not their role. Let me give you two examples where I've seen this play out. One in China, one in America. Recently, in the last few years in China, we've seen this play out very clearly. The church in China is being kind of squashed by the government in China. And what they're doing is they're telling China, the Chinese churches, here's how you must worship. Here's what you must say about the Communist Party. Here's the imagery you must have. And here's what you can and cannot say about Jesus. Is the government allowed by God, per the authority God's given each government, the right to do that? The answer is no. It's a different lane. They are not allowed to tell the church how to worship. They might think they are allowed to. But they are not allowed to. And what they are slowly doing is accruing justice that will ultimately come towards that government by God whenever we break God's commands. Just as whenever any nation develops laws that break God's ideals and commands. Now let's look at America. If in America there is a number of laws that are very, very low right now. I mean, these are just kind of floating through institutions and being brought. But in America right now, there's some bills that are being looked at that are trying to tell Christian parents that they cannot homeschool their children and teach Christian history and Christian values to their children, that they want to kind of outlaw homeschooling. Now, would that be something that the government can do? Well, not by these lanes. The government shouldn't be telling the family what they can teach their children and can't teach their children. That's not something they can do. There's a different lane. That's not what they're to do. That's for a father of a house to decide what he's supposed to do in that family. For the parents of the house to decide what they're supposed to do. In the, you see how these lanes get mixed up? It's so easy to mix them up. And we do this all the time. We have to think biblically. Now let's review what we've seen. Three main points. Number one, government is under God's authority and ultimately held accountable to God. Number two, we saw that government is God's servant responsible for carrying the sword on the evildoer. Particularly, we spoke of an internal sword and an external sword. And then number three, we saw that government operates from a specific and limited sphere of influence and that they must not overstep their bounds. Now, here's the key. And I want to go back to what Kenson said last week. What I want to have happen in you is that you learn to love God. You learn to worship God. And you do that by by getting to know his word, filled by the Holy Spirit, knowing his word, loving his word, cherishing God for what he's revealed to us. Most of the issues, most, not all, some are clear in his day. Clummer, some, some political issues in our day are so clear. It's God's command. It's night and day, right? We think about something like abortion, right? There, there's, no, there's no other thing we can say other than it's against God's desire, right? Easy one. Christians know what they ought to do on that. Most of the issues that we wrestle with are jagged lines. It's, it, you come at this from different angles and it takes wisdom and meekness and humility to listen to people on the other side. What Christians oftentimes do is they make the mistake of taking, of thinking that jagged line issues from scripture to political issues are straight line issues. And then we, we beef up and we, we have our stance and we, we make ourselves incapable of listening to someone else with a different opinion. When if we're really honest with the scriptures, it's kind of a jagged line issue. We got to go back and say, wait, we can look at this in many different lanes and we should have convictions, but we need to learn to speak to each other with meekness, 
with humility, with, with, with selflessness to listen to another opinion and, and consider them better than, your, than yourselves, smarter than yourselves, that maybe they have something to teach you and you got to come at this and to know your Bible with greater clarity, you're dependent on some other voices to help shape your blind spots. See, that's what I want to have formed in us. We just got through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus forming the selflessness in us. Church, I want you to aim for worship of Jesus. And to do that, we have to have an air of meekness about us. Knowing the word of God, celebrating what he's revealed, yet living it out with a humility that says, I got a lot to learn and I want to learn from others as well. Can we do that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, as we talk on this topic of government, we recognize that we are stepping into the deep end of the pool. This is tough stuff. And I'm certain that some of what I shared today, might, people might disagree with, they might think differently of. God, I pray that your word would be clear, that we would know your word, that we would go back to your word, that your Holy Spirit would give us clarity. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.